some of you may be a little surprised to see me because everyone was expecting most, well, we were all expecting Stephen to preach. Um, Stephen was going to bring the word to you today, and at 4 o'clock yesterday, I got a text that their flight was canceled. So he and the DR team are hopefully, prayerfully leaving out today, um, but they have a long day of travel ahead of them. They don't get into Miami or leave Miami until about midnight tonight. Um, so let's be in prayer for them uh, and be in prayer for their families who miss them and are ready to have them back. Um, so you get me. And uh, I always like to leave lots of room for the Holy Spirit to move in my sermons. Today he's got lots, and that's good, that's good. So we are uh, continuing to talk about the foundation series. Uh, we're looking back at the early church, and it may seem weird to talk about a church that was established 2,000 years ago, and what difference does it make what they did 2,000 years ago and what we do now? I mean, especially because when you look at the church today, the church has evolved. It's very different than the way it was when it was first established after Jesus' time. Uh, and there's a reason that the church has evolved, and that main reason is because to stay relevant. You know, it's like we have a very important message to share, but the way we've shared that message has had to change so that we can be sure people hear it. But what hasn't changed is our message. Our message should be exactly the same. The values of the early church should be the values of the church today. And so that's why it's important for us to look back to see what mattered to the early church, to how the early church operated, what worked for them, um, how their message was shared can still matter for us today to ensure the way that we're saying it is the way Jesus intended his church to grow and share the message of the gospel. And so today we're talking about the significance of family in the church. And luckily for St. John, as always, we align really well with the early church. So a couple weeks ago, we saw this slide when we were talking about the word. And we talked about how one of our values is Bible-based. And today we get to talk about how we're family-focused and how that's a value for us. Now I want to reemphasize about this list of values. You remember... This isn't in order of importance. Just because family focus is the last value on this list doesn't mean it's the least important for us. But there is one value that is most important. You remember which one it is? Christ-centered. Woohoo! Y'all are doing great. And you listened. That's good. And plus, it's pretty obvious. Pastor Yosmar talked about this just last week about how the early church is founded, every single element that goes into a church is founded on Christ. As a church, it's very important for us to look at the different things we are doing, the different programs we have, the different things we are involved in to say, is everything we are doing centered in Christ? If it's not, guess what needs to happen? It needs to go. We are the church. We have to be focused and centered on Christ. Otherwise, we're not doing what he intends for us to do or he created the church to do. So today we're going to talk about how family mattered uh, in the early church. And we're talking about a scripture that is a tough one to preach, let me tell you. But it's a good one. We need to talk about it. We need to talk about the relevance of why this was written, about why Paul wrote this. And we're going to dig into that a lot today. I know you're on the edge of your seats, so get ready. We're going to hear the word from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Out of respect also, 
before I get started. This is from the message version um, of scripture because this is a, a difficult scripture sometimes to understand and I feel like Eugene does a really good job. So hear the word of the Lord. Out of respect for Christ, be courteously reverent to one another. Wives, understand and support your husbands in ways that show your support for Christ. The husband provides leadership to his wife the way Christ does to his church. Not by domineering, but by cherishing. So just as the church submits to Christ as he exercises such leadership, wives should likewise submit to their husbands. Husbands, go all out in your love for your wives, exactly as Christ did for the church, a love marked by giving, not getting. Christ's love makes the church whole. His words evoke her beauty. Everything he does and says is designed to bring the best out of her, dazzling her in white silk, radiant with holiness. And that is how husbands ought to love their wives. They're really doing themselves a favor since they're already one in marriage. No one abuses his own body, does he? No, he feeds and pampers it. That's how Christ treats us, the church, since we are part of his body. And this is why a man leaves father and mother and cherishes his wife. No longer two, they become one flesh. This is a huge mystery, and I don't pretend to understand it all. What is clearest to me is the way Christ treats the church, and this provides a good picture of how each husband is to treat his wife, loving himself and loving her, and how each wife is to honor her husband. Oh, thanks be to God for his word today. I pray that we hear exactly what God needs us to hear and wants us to hear today for a deeper relationship with him and with each other. When I told Chris this is what I was preaching on, he asked if he could preach today. <laughs> I came real close to letting him. So before we really dig into this letter, I want to talk about... Um, I always love to get into the historical context and the cultural context of how all these things were written. It's so important for us, especially with the letter to the Ephesians uh, and the letter to Timothy, who was also in Ephesus, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, to understand their society, to understand the audience to who these letters were written. And so I want us to be able to dig into that so that we can really make fruit of what Paul is saying here. Now, Paul had been to Ephesus a few times during his missionary journey, um, but there was two years where he was there every single day in the city of Ephesus preaching the gospel. And so many people came to Christ. So many, so many Jews and so many Gentiles turned their life over to Christ and submitted to him. Now, this letter to the church of Ephesus, because he had been there for two years, he had built relationships with these people, he knew them. This letter was personal. This was a letter to people he dearly loved and wanted to see succeed. And so when we look at the six chapters all together, we can kind of break it up into two halves. The first half, chapters one through three, Paul really emphasizes what Jesus has done. He preaches the gospel. He's praising God for what Jesus did. He's rejoicing about the offering of redemption, the opportunity these people now have in Christ to have new life, that God wants to bless his people who have come to him, and that there is great power within them, a power that only comes to them through the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm using this word, them, a lot, and I want us to really understand what this use of the word, them, means. So when Paul 
was writing this letter, and you think about all those people that were converted into Christianity, you had really two big sets of people, the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews were the people of the Abraham covenant who had been God's chosen people, but then you had the Gentiles over here who had never had the opportunity to be a part of that. And now Jesus opened it up for everybody. They were literally all under this wonderful umbrella of Jesus Christ. And Paul sums it up really nice in chapter 1, verse 18, when he says, He treated us as equals. Jesus, Jesus treated us as equals, and so made us equals. Through him, we both share the same spirit and have equal access to the Father. Imagine that, even as a Jew who really could never go into the temple, the Holy of Holies, because a priest had to do that, the high priest. They never had access to the Father before. And then you have the Gentiles who had never even heard of any of this before, who were like, wow, now we have access to the Father. Now we are all equal. And through the Holy Spirit, we have access, uh-oh, to God. I lost my connection here. But you didn't notice that, just me. So I want to talk about how now Paul is emphasizing this importance of unity of becoming one church. They are not alone. They are one. And so when we look at chapters 1 through 3, really it's asking us, ooh, I, you did notice, because I just messed it up. That was a long wait for that question. The chapters 1 through 3 is asking us, will you believe in Christ, and will you take on who you are as a new creation in Him? That's really what Paul is trying to get across to the church of Ephesus in this letter. And now when we turn to the second half, so this is a picture of the remains of Ephesus in now the country of Turkey. And we need to really understand what Ephesus, what kind of city this place was in order to understand this letter in the second half of how Paul wrote to them. So Ephesus was a vast metropolis second only to Athens and Rome. It was a happening place. There was a lot of welfare. There was a lot going on. The dominant religion was that of the worship to Artemis, who was a goddess. And we're going to talk about her in length in a little bit. Now, because Artemis was the prominent one there, there were other religions that were allowed. But Christianity was not Christianity was a big no-no. It was seen as being a dishonor to uh, Artemis and being a real threat to her worship. So the Christians of Ephesus were in the margins. They were a small majority. They were beat up on. It was, they were always under this threat of violence because of the way they believed and because they were trying to share the gospel. There was great persecution of the church there. Not only were they rejected from the Romans and the Gentiles there, but they were also rejected from the Jews. The Jewish people didn't want anything to do with the Christians there, especially because they didn't want to mess with the social status of where they were in that city and in their temple. These reasons, because they were under persecution and they had all this going against them, is a big reason why we have that awesome armor of God that Paul gives us in chapter 6 as a way to combat the spiritual warfare that the church was fighting up against all the time in order to spread the gospel. 
This is called the Temple of Artemis. And this is a model. There's been three or four versions. This was a huge deal. It was one of the, it was the biggest structure in Roman history, was this temple for Artemis. And this is actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Okay, so when I say Artemis was a big deal, you're really going to understand why she was a big deal. Artemis was a twin. She was born before her twin, Apollo was. Her creation story and the belief of what she could do and did for people influenced the social statuses of women and men in Ephesus. This is your rule of thumb, okay, for how women and men were as a social status. This is so good, you guys. Women rule, men rule. You wouldn't have heard that in Stephen's sermon. Don't worry, we're going to get our humble pie. Uh, but it really was, the social status was women are the authority. Women are up here. All right, Artemis was born first. She's a big deal. The cult of Artemis, the women, there were only women who were the officials, who led that worship and who led that culture. And the men allowed it to happen. But, but here's what else stemmed from this imbalance of this hierarchy is they really believe that Artemis could give life. She could give new life. She could also take it quickly. So you had women who were coming all over who were uh, bearing children. If they felt like there, anything could go wrong and they could die during childbearing, they would go to Artemis and pray for her to save their life or if they were going to suffer, for her to take their life quickly. Artemis was literally a savior. She was a savior for those who worshipped her. You kind of getting that feel now of why Christianity was such a threat to Artemis? Because there was a new savior. There was the Messiah of the world, Jesus Christ. So uh, women and men allowed women to be far superior than men in this culture, which is something that is not typical for this culture. When you look at the Gentiles in Ephesus, women were here, men were here. When you look at the Jewish people, men were here, women were here. So you had this imbalance on both sides of the culture of this hierarchy of who held the highest standards. So the second half of the book of Ephesians is really asking people, this, are you willing, will you obey God and become who he has called you to be? Are you willing to get rid of all this other stuff that's influenced how you believe and take on a new life, a new belief system? So I've wondered when God was going to have me talk about this scripture uh, because it's literally haunted me my entire calling in trying to figure out what God wanted me to do in ministry. But this is an important piece that I want to talk about, about why this is written the way it's written. And so this is, this scripture, which we're going to talk about, has been thrown in my face. It's been used to justify people believing that I'm a sinner because I'm a preacher. It's been used for people to say, because you make decisions, I'm not going to listen to you because you're a woman. It's been used for people to say, I'm not ever going to work for you in the church because you're a woman. This scripture is hard. It's been used in a terrible way to hurt a lot of people, and uh, especially me, because it's personally been used against me. And so I want to talk about this specific portion that Paul wrote to Timothy, 
who was in the church of Ephesus. Now that we have this understanding of their culture. And so Paul writes this, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness and with self-control. I want to introduce a very important theory. You notice here, Paul talks about the creation story right after he talks about women needing to be quiet in church. Remember this balance, this imbalance of women and men over here? And now he's highlighting this balance of man and woman, talking about Adam being born first. He makes that correlation, not to make women and men do this, but to do this. He's trying to overcorrect a theory. He's trying to overcorrect a culture that has been very, very influenced and helped women think they have authority in church when women couldn't read, they couldn't do a lot of things. So when church was happening, they were learning about all these things. They're like, wait, 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 I don't understand. I need to know what's going on. Okay, no, you need to hush. We're trying to, we're trying to get church going here. That's really what was happening here. There was a lot of disruption. He also talks to the men because the men are, they're mad. They're not praying. They're not doing the things they need to do. But we don't tell men you can't pray in church. We don't say that. But this definitely gets pulled. Because we remember, what did Paul say in Ephesians 1.18? What did we talk about that's happening there with the Jews and the Gentiles? They're equal. They're equal. Paul's not going to contradict himself and then say here that we're not, that men and women aren't equal. He's trying to correct a culture that has an imbalance of men and women and the understanding of their place in society. Paul is trying to help the church of Ephesus be one, to be equal. They can't be one if their family dynamic is one over the other. They can't be one if there's a group of people who feel they are more superior than the other. What Paul is saying to the early church, to us today, and to the future church, is that the church is one just as husband and wife are one. Husband and wife cannot be one without being the same. Here's where their sameness comes in, is in their submission to one another. In their submission to one another through the Holy Spirit. That's where they get their sameness from. That's where they get the equality from. That's where they become one, is through the Spirit and through submitting to one another. Wives, submit to your husband. Allow them to be responsible for yourself. Chris and I have started taking dance lessons. It's been a lot of fun, but if anybody's ever taken dance lessons, you know the man leads. The woman follows. I didn't realize how much I tried to lead. <laughs> I'm like, pulling him back, like, where, where are you counting at, dude? We gotta go. And he's like, I'm supposed to lead. I'm trying to get my brain ready. It's been fun. It's been a new challenge. We really enjoyed it. But it's also been freeing for me to try to not jump in and do the thing that I know needs to be done and just let him grow into that. It's a good opportunity for us both to work on those roles. 
which I'm learning patience as well. <laughs> but this call to submission to the husband is not one so men can have authority over women. That's not what this is, and that's not what Scripture tells us. It's from a point of cherishing, of cherishing, of giving. Men, it's about giving, not getting. The husband builds the wife up in love, enabling her to grow in Christ, just as Christ enables the church to grow in him. Men, love your wives as Christ loved the church. This is a part that we don't talk about a lot. We talk about women, submit, but we don't get to the men part. How did Christ love his church? He died for her. The ultimate act of submission he died for her. He died for his people. Submission is a two-way street that Jesus paid for us long ago through his death and through his resurrection. Jesus was a leader for his bride, the church, his people, all people who believe in him. And that leadership led him to die for her, for the church, for this body of people gathered right here today. For all the people who are part of our body but are traveling somewhere because it's fall break. And I guess people get to do that. For those people who are stuck in the DR right now because their plane was canceled yesterday. For all those people who are watching online. Jesus gave himself up for all of those people who profess that he is their Lord and Savior. The bride of the church is respectful of Jesus and his will. But let's and women are to love their husbands in that way, to be respectful. But here's the kicker. Here's where the alignment needs to happen, is the husband needs to be in God's will. The husband needs to be seeking God's will. Husbands, are you seeking God's will for your life and for your families? Also, this doesn't give husbands permission to just get lost in providing for their family. I hear this used a lot because, well, I, I've got to provide for my family. I've got to work, work, work all the time. So you're with your family, you're on your phone, or you're working really long hours. I didn't read that here. What I read is God is to be first in your life. And if men, if you're keeping God first, that means your call to discipleship is first. That means your wife is your first disciple, and your children are your second disciples. That's how God ordained it to be. Wives, we have a role as well. If men are called into this discipleship, and wives are their first, and then kids are their second ways of discipling, guess what? We are too. Because guess what? We're equal. Husbands are our first disciple. We are to work on them, to pray for them, to support them, to help them grow. Our kids, oof, we're discipling them every single day, whether they're in your house or not. We are discipling them. Does this mean, because we have a, our roles look a little bit different in marriage, does this mean that we can't lead or we can't have careers? No, women, that's not what this means. But I'll give you this one for free and from experience. When I choose my career over my kids and my husband, I've got hell to pay for it. I feel it in my heart. I feel it for my kids, and I feel it for my husband. But when I choose my family, 
when I choose my family, that's when I unlock this beautiful love that God has for the family. When Chris and I are aligned, we're choosing each other, we're choosing God, we're choosing our family. That's when we can fully experience what Paul is saying to us right here. Unlocking this gift of Christ's presence in our lives. The scripture does not set up a hierarchy. It sets up the roles of marriage that make marriage whole. And the wholeness can only be found in and through Jesus Christ. Just as the church only finds her purpose and her wholeness in Jesus. To land this plane, or actually to begin the descent, we're getting there. The concept of marriage is a vital way God points to heaven and earth. I, I, I pray that this lands because this is so good from N.T. Wright. He has a beautiful concept about this. In the creation story, in the very beginning, in chapter 2, you have Adam and Eve. This is before the fall. And they leave their family, right? And they become one flesh. That's what God said makes a family and makes marriage, is to become one flesh. Then you go all the way to the end of the scripture in Revelation. And you have, in that chapter, in 21 and, or 20 and 21, you have this beautiful vision of New Jerusalem coming to meet the bridegroom. The new church, the church that Jesus died for and who have professed and believed are finally in union with Christ the way it's meant to be. We're living in this tension right now of looking forward to that. And then all throughout Scripture, you have these illustrations of marriage. And what this marriage and this illustration does is points to this new heaven and new earth that we have to look forward to of when they finally, just as in paradise, in the Garden of Eden when they were together as they should be, we finally have what it will be again. Marriage is supposed to point to that. N.T. Wright says the coming together of male plus female is itself a signpost pointing to the great complementarity of God's whole creation, of heaven and earth belonging together. No pressure there, right? There's a couple of things we got to remember, though. Because we're looking at before the fall and what will happen when Jesus returns to get his bride. Humanity's broken. We're sinners. Thankfully, we're sinners saved by grace. But we're sinners. We're going we're gonna to get it wrong. We're going to disrespect one another. We're going to say things we don't mean. We're going to hurt each other's feelings. We're going to choose our career over our families. We're going to lash out at our husbands. We're going to lash out at our kids. We're going to say stupid stuff. We're going to make mistakes because we are broken. We are human. We aren't Jesus. Thank goodness for that. I don't have to say much about this because it's pretty, pretty straightforward, but I do want to say this. I hope you know him. I hope you seek him every day, that you get to know him a little bit better through his word. And that we can learn more deeply from him so that we can love our spouse in a way 
that honors him more and more and more. And lastly, and honestly, most importantly, the enemy is real. The enemy is real, and he is after marriage, and he is after family. He is attacking them. And he's doing it because he knows from Scripture what God wants marriage to symbolize. The signposts pointing to heaven and earth. He wants marriage to fail. He wants families to be broken apart. He's all over confusing what marriage is supposed to be, breaking marriages up, causing deceit and lies and affairs and anger and resentment and arguments. He is on the prowl, and frankly, friends, he's winning. There are more divorces now than ever. There are more orphans now than ever. He's winning. We've got to fight for our families. We've got to fight for our marriages, and we have to fight for others. We weren't meant to do this, remember? We are meant to be one. We are meant to be united. So how do we, how do we as the church, keep aiming for this oneness that the early church emphasized, that Paul emphasized today, not only here, but for our families and in marriages? Well, first, we gotta pray, and we gotta fast, and we gotta worship. And we got to do these things on the regular. They have to be a part of our every day. Are we making space for God? Are we lifting these people up? Are we praying for our families, for our children, for our spouse, for people who you know are struggling, for the people of this church, for America's church that is quickly on a decline, and for the global church? This, these things, this is how we fight our battle. This is it. This is when we show our commitment and our devotion and our belief in God every single day, making space and time for this so that God, who is the victor, so that he knows we believe that and people can start seeing the transformational love of Christ because we will be transformed if we make space for this every day. Secondly, submit. Submit to one another. And what's that look like? What's that look like inside of the church and marriage? Because submit is such a hard word. It always feels very like I'm just a mat on the floor and everybody's running over me. That's not what this submission is. This is serving one another. Serving one another. An example of that is don't come to worship one Sunday. Go work in our children's area for a Sunday. Go back there so that a young couple who has young kids can come in here and grow together so that they can learn how to better fight for their family. Because guess what? You're not missing worship. You're worshiping in a different way. When we serve God, we are worshiping God, no matter what capacity that may be. Are we cooking a meal? Let's cook for these families. Let's take a meal to them. Let's take a meal to the person that we know is caring for a parent, which is such a tough place to be as an adult, is caring for your parents. Let's love on those people. Let's pray for those people. Visit somebody who's alone, who's lost their spouse or lost a friend. Let us, as a staff, know 
who we need to be reaching out to so that we can activate our congregational care team to love on these people and support them. Submission, however, like we talked about, is a two-way street, remember? We don't just give, we also receive. We also receive. Don't decline help. When somebody wants to help you or they want to bring you a meal or they want to come visit you, let them. Let's stop saying no because when we do that, we're saying no to the Holy Spirit. We're saying no to God moving somebody to care for us, to provide something that we may not even know we need, but God knows we need. Lastly, and this was a Stephen thing, I didn't steal his sermon, <laughs> even though he sent it to me as a help, but I hope someday he gets to preach it. It's really good. But this was one of his things, and I thought it was awesome, is just to be intentional. Not only in this stuff for our marriages and in our blood family, before our church family. Do you see one another in the church as mothers, as fathers, as sisters, as brothers, as daughters, sons, grandchildren, grandparents? Do you see the orphan that's in your midst? Or the lonely person who has lost somebody that they love? Or the kids running around? Do you see those kids as your kids? If anybody wants to take mine home, <laughs> you'll bring them back. They're cute, but small doses. Do we see each other as family, as one? This stuff isn't hard, but it's different. It's definitely countercultural. This is not what the world wants us to do. This is not what the world wants us to believe. But if we want people to know Jesus, we have to live as he did. And that means living as one with our spouses, and as one united body in Christ, as his bride, his church. Let's pray. God, you are so good, and I'm just so thankful that you always provide a word, that your Holy Spirit is here and I just pray that every person that hears this message, God, has heard you, has heard your love, your redemption, your truth. I pray that you just move people in the way that you desire for them to move, God, so that they can grow closer to you, they can know you more deeply, they can experience you in new ways. And that this concept of submission, God, will not be something that makes us feel lesser than, but that it will help us feel greater in you as we love other people in a way that they know we love them. And most importantly, God, that they know you love them. God, I just pray as we continue to worship you, as we offer our praise that you know how much we love you. May you feel honored and glorified. And we love you so much. And in Jesus' holy name we pray.